Okay, good morning everybody. If you have a Bible, find your Bible. Amen. We are going to spend some time uh, looking at the Word of God together. And this comes as part of our series, going through the Apostles' Creed. Um, so, I, I think we'll actually read through that creed first, and then we'll turn to the passage that we're looking at today. Sorry, I'm getting all a, all a bit of a jumble. Somewhere in here is my little crib sheet. Here we go. So, this is the Apostles' Creed, and uh, on the screen it, it may come up, and it says this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So when we've gathered together all like this, uh, like this uh, recently, We've made a start on the Apostles' Creed, and most recently, with, uh, with Grant's help, we have considered uh, believing what it means to believe in God the Father, particularly Creator of heaven and earth. And we're moving on today uh, to consider the next couple of statements. I believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, because the Apostles' Creed and the Christian faith is significantly about Jesus. In fact, some have said of this particular creed, it actually reads like a statement about Jesus with a quick introduction and a few concluding comments. The focus is clearly Christ. And so those are the statements we're looking at. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And what that's doing, it's marking out the, the unique and special identity of Jesus. You might think, well, aren't, aren't we all unique? Unique more than just in the sense of having fingerprints and like a unique blend of hobbies and interests. Unique in who he is as, as both God and man conceived by the Holy Spirit. And this means that for us, in saying, I believe in Jesus Christ, we're really saying together, it, it's, it's impossible to make too much of Jesus. Just how special he is deserves our singular focus, our rejoicing, our faith, our worship, our devotion, our bended knee, our whole lives lived out for his glory. Um, we're not called to be a people who boast apart from this, boasting in Jesus. We get to bear his name as believers, as Christians. So it's perhaps no surprise that we could visit any number of passages in the Bible 
this morning, coming in in a close second, uh, was 2 Peter chapter 1. There you go. You can look at that another, another time. But for now, I'd like us to turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 41. For one of those, I don't know about you, but one of those passages in the, in the Gospels that's just almost especially intriguing. We know a lot about Jesus, well, especially from Luke's Gospel, not a lot about Jesus' uh, birth, the circumstances of his conception and birth, uh, babe in arms, in the, laid in a manger, and we know a huge amount about his ministry from the age of about 30 onwards. And Luke is the only gospel writer to give us this glimpse into Jesus as a 12-year-old. Can I just see a show of hands? Any, who's 12? Yeah? Oh, it's just a few. Go, girls. Um, who, this might cause people to scratch their heads for a bit, but... Anyone here know, for definite, I, I have been a believer in Jesus for 12 years. Jesus has been in my life for 12 years. Actually, for, I don't know why I've got my hand up, actually, because it's a bit longer than that. No, no, anyone's, yes, I've just got scratching heads. I see that hand. Yeah, rocking. Okay. Well, at this point, Jesus has been in Mary's life for 12 years or a bit longer. Let's read the passage. I'm getting carried away. So Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. And after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company... They traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That is the kind of passage, I think, that just has us massively intrigued. Maybe because culturally it just seems like so far away. You know, can you imagine just going for a walk with a big group of people and just assuming that your 12-year-old is around, then having to spend three days looking for them? It, it almost just sounds like a lesson in how not to parent. Or perhaps it's a peculiar lesson for all of us where we're thinking and for a while, did, did Jesus do something wrong here? Was Jesus a naughty boy? 
So we're just puzzled by it. Well, what I want to do it really is say, well, it's, it's about something far more different from those questions. And it concludes with this little note about his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Today, our focus in looking on this part of the Apostles' Creed and considering who Jesus is, his identity as Christ, the only Son of God, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, I'll tell you the conclusion already. Our response is to be a people who treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. Treasuring Jesus. I wonder, um, what would you do to, to really treasure something? This word, it, it will mean to really carefully watch over. You know, if you have something that is precious to you, you're not going to be reckless. You're not going to lose track of where you last put it. You're going to know precisely where it is. And, and you're going to pay careful attention to, uh, to its condition. You're going to guard it vigilantly. It's awkward. But is there anything where if somebody said, could you lend that to me? You would say, no. It's so precious. I'm not letting go of this. I'm not letting go of it. I wonder, you know, in, I have to be careful with this scenario. It got into my dreams in a weird way last night. Yeah, if, if you were in a house fire, I don't know how, like in my imagination, I've now got to portray this life-threatening but really gentle house fire, okay, so that you've got time to go and find this one really precious thing, okay? Honestly, if the alarm goes right now, don't kind of like ponder and think, you know, what shall I take with me? We all just leave the building, okay? Don't take this as, as a lesson in fire safety, can you think of something like I would? I just I'd have to grab that. This happened to some relatives of mine. They they experienced a house fire. They had a knock at the door, and a neighbour said, "Do you realise your your shed is on fire? And the embers from the shed the shed was right next to the house, so it got into the roof space and just took the roof." And they were unaware of it. They could easily just walk out of the house. So in that sense, it wasn't a life-threatening situation. But later on, this house that is thoroughly damaged and cannot be lived in for 18 months, they, they had to be really careful, obviously. But there, were just, there was just a certain thing here or there. It's like, we can't do without that. It, it means too much. And that should be that attitude for all those who know and believe in Jesus. He, he means too much. I'm going to do everything in my power to cherish him, to treasure him. I wonder if that's what's going on when Peter is drawing to the end of his life in the other passage I could have tried to preach. Uh, and in 2 Peter chapter 1, tricky to turn to when you've only got one free hand, so you'll probably get there before me. Uh, 2 Peter, chapter 1, reading from verse 12. He's writing with passion. He's writing with urgency. 
And so he says, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I'll make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. What things? What's so vital for us to remember that aware that his time is shortly up, Peter thinks, I've just got to write. What are these things? You read through just the first chapter of that letter and you see the ways in which he speaks of Christ. How he identifies who Jesus is. And he'll talk about some of his own experience of seeing Christ in majestic glory. Because for Peter, he could say, I was on the mountain when Jesus was transfigured. Utterly radiant and glorious. Treasure these things. Remember this. The church of Jesus Christ gets into all sorts of bother when we fail to treasure Jesus. Every false teaching, every problem in the church, every moral failing in a believer, every heresy and stupid idea polluting the church across the world, across this nation, stems from a failure to treasure Jesus. So what are you, what are you storing up? What are you holding on to? Mary has already been treasuring Christ before now. Jesus, the Son of God, in the most amazing way, has, has been part of her life for some years. Um, she had the remarkable experience of, of the angel's visit in Luke chapter 1, when the angel came with this message in Luke 1 and verse 30. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. No doubt she wrestled with the consequences of carrying the Son of the Most High. And she said yes to God. And then at some point, the, the Holy Spirit came upon her to conceive this miracle child, born of God. And later on, uh, after his birth, there would be shepherds on the hillsides, they would encounter angels, and they would come down with this encouragement to go to the town of David, we're told in chapter 2, in chapter 2, verse 11 of Luke. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is God's one and only chosen and anointed one, the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger, the Savior of the world. 
And so the shepherds come and they speak with Mary and Joseph and they share what they have heard. And it says there in, in verse 19 that Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. There were certain memories, I suppose, that she just would not let go of. She would always ponder and remember in the situation that we're looking at here towards the end of chapter 2. She's actually not doing that to start with. This is a new season, um, uh, a new situation, a challenging one. So when you get to the end of this experience, she is treasuring what has happened. She's treasuring what she has learnt about Jesus. But actually... She goes through a variety of stages before she gets there. We're going to go through what those stages were. And well, I guess I'll ask you, which, which one do you most identify with? Which stage do you most identify with? And actually, what then is God calling you to do about it? So let's, let's go through. Like I say, she's not treasuring the situation to start with. Her first stage is assuming Christ. She just takes for granted that he is there. You see in, in verse 34, 43, in fact, this is a devoted family. They've, they've gone up to the festival. They've gone up to this big annual celebration in Jerusalem. As the custom, the festival is complete, and so the whole kind of family or, or village group are on the journey home. And in verse 43, it says, after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it, thinking he was in their company they traveled on for a day. Okay, the mind boggles at that point, but a way of life was far more community-based than perhaps we know now. And they were unaware that he'd stayed behind and they had set off home. You know, we can sometimes think, we can be reminded that one of Jesus' names is Emmanuel. God is with us. Wonderful truth, which can then breed a casual attitude. Like Mary and Joseph, we can be over-reliant. I'm sure Jesus is around here somewhere. We can be over-reliant on the group. We can be thinking of Jesus as just, well, of course he'll do what we expect him to do. This is the group activity. I don't even need to entertain whether Jesus is here or not. Of course he is, because it's us. And we're part of this group, and I'm sure you know, we're God-honoring people, so I'm sure Jesus is with us. And I wonder, this can sometimes happen at different points in our lives. Maybe we can come to a point where we realize, maybe I have just been over-reliant on just being part of a particular group. And just, therefore, I know that Jesus is with me. And, and sometimes the, the, the recipe of life, the situation of life, 
quite drastically changes and it causes a bit of a shock to the system. That could be coming to university or going to university. If you've grown up with parents, carers in a particular church community, by the time you're 18 or 19, if you took a gap year or something else, if you're more mature, um, you're in this community and everybody knows your name. Then you're then a new season of life kind of takes you out of that familiarity. And you might realize, oh, was I, was I just over-reliant on being part of the group? Of being part of a family where kind of mum and dad would make the decisions about what we do, where we go, how we spend our time. We pray before a mealtime. We talk about the Bible. We, we do this. We do that. It's all familiar. And then you come into a situation where you have to consider for yourself, actually, where is Jesus? At this point, Mary's just, uh, they're just assuming Jesus would not dare to do something out of the ordinary. It's not true. Jesus is not beholden to our expectations. We can have that familiarity towards Jesus and just think that he's our boy, he's our lad. And he's, he's always with us because we, we've kind of just decided. We've got a group identity. And then we can just start to actually act as though we own Jesus. And we get to decide what he does. Now, membership of a group is a good thing. To be part of a village. To be part of a family. To be part of a church to be part of a movement, even to be part of a nation. But none of those things guarantee the real active presence of Jesus. And it's not that Jesus abandons anyone. And without putting too fine a point on it, it's that actually any group can move away from Jesus without realizing it. Well, they think well, they're devoted to God, doing the customary thing. We're going up to Jerusalem, party's over, we're heading home. Life has got a rhythm, life has got a pattern. And sometimes in those moments, we just assume that Jesus is always there, but perhaps we need to consider Jesus' priorities rather than our own expectations. It can happen to any group. That's why, that explains partly why Paul will speak to those with some responsibility over a church in particularly strong terms. You could turn to Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Paul will speak to a group of elders and will say to them, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. 
Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And sometimes for, for Christians and sometimes for a church, it's just possible to always operate on the assumption, of course Jesus is with us, let's just crack on and do stuff. Of course we want to crack on and do stuff. But God says to the elders of a church, keep watch. It actually it, it needs attention. As sheep, are we still with the shepherd? Or as sheep, have we just got drawn into drifting somewhere? Truth has got distorted. So are we assuming Christ? Well, actually, thankfully, Mary moves on from that moment. Although it can't have been the most pleasant discovery to realize after a day of travel that her 12-year-old boy, if I can call him that, wasn't there. Now, you can understand in some respect, by now, surely she had lots of children with Joseph, brothers and sisters. In the, in the 12 years that have passed since his birth, the chances are they'd had a few more children by then. They've got lots of com commitments, keeping track of absolutely everything. It's, it's busy. Sometimes that can be what life is like. We didn't realize we were drifting away from Jesus because we were so focused on serving him. I've got a job to do. I've got a family to raise. I've got a community to be a part of and friends to support. And maybe 12 years on from starting a family, if you've had that privilege, you, there can be this dawning moment of just waking up and thinking, I haven't really had to think about what my priorities are for such a long time. Set out before me is a, is a schedule that's always totally full on. And maybe at the point where your children are gaining that little bit more independence, you, you can think to yourself, Ooh, where's Jesus? <laughs> where, where, where am I? What's There's something in the recipe of life that means you can wake up to the midlife crisis and just go, what am I doing? What are my priorities? Jesus has not abandoned you. He's not left you. If anything, by his grace, he's looking just to draw you back in. What? Maybe the Lord would just ask you the question. Don't ask the question to yourself. Take it from the Lord. What are your priorities? Mary then goes through these, uh, well, actually a number of stages. Later on, she will, when she, when she does discover Jesus, she will describe it as an anxious search. I think if you were looking for a child for, 12, uh, for three days, uh, you would be to some degree a bit tormented and agonized by that, and you won't have slept much or at all. So in some respects, of course it was that. We might come later on to why it didn't need to be described as anxious. Nevertheless, these three days, what's she done? Well, first of all, they started by looking for him among their relatives and friends. Have you seen Jesus? They are searching for Christ. If they've been assuming his presence, now they realize he's not present, they are searching for him. And first of all, they do that by looking for him among their relatives and friends. Have you seen him? And then 
No doubt after a few conversations and walking around the group, they realize the, the group will continue its journey. If we want to find Jesus, we are going to have to retrace our steps and go back the way we came. That's the second part of the search. The second part of the search is we've been part of the big group. That's wonderful. There's no massive judgment on the group, but we need to do something. So let's go back. And we have to retrace our steps when searching for Jesus. There's no point ranting and raving at the group. This is on me. I've got to go look for him again. And so they do that. They went back to Jerusalem, retracing their steps. And I guess then the third stage is that well, they arrive in Jerusalem and arrive at, in particular, the temple. They revisit the temple courts, where they've been celebrating the Passover, the focus of, of Israel's devotion to God. They retrace their steps there. Of course, the process must have been agonizing. I wonder if you were just one of the friends or relatives. What would you have said to Mary and Joseph? How, how would you have responded as friend or relative in that moment? I wonder if the casual Christian, maybe that's me, would say something to the effect of, don't worry. Don't worry. He's, he's around here somewhere. He'll come and find you. He'll, he'll turn up. Take it easy. Would that be really received? Would that be helpful? If we need to make a fresh search for Jesus, I don't need to like turn some anxiety screw, but it would be better to say, keep looking. Don't stop looking. Don't stop searching for him. Whatever you do, don't give up. One of Peter's favorite phrases in the other sermon on 2 Peter chapter 1, I'll just borrow for the purpose of this one, is make every effort. Does that sound like a strange phrase? within our kind of church environment and culture. Make every effort or let God be God. Take it easy. Feet up. He wants you to be able to relax. Just soak or do something strange. No. He uses this strongly deliberate language. He's not saying worry. He's not saying you are going to earn favor with God. He's just saying make every effort. That's why he wrote the letter. I'm going to make every effort so that after I've passed away, after I've been martyred, that's Peter, hopefully not me, um, after I've been martyred, you will know the truth and stay established and firm in believing who Jesus is. It has to be deliberate. If it's just laissez-faire, relax, take it easy, God's around here somewhere, we will drift. There'll be ways in which we get off track. And so maybe that's 
that's what we might need to do, to do. Actually, there is conversation, like Mary and Joseph, looking for him among their relatives and friends. Now, that is the great, great advantage of just not just being part of a church, but getting stuck in with a small group. Not just can you remember all the points from Sunday, how good are your notes compared to the person next to you. It's, it's a place and a space, maybe yet with people you don't even know tremendously well, but to open yourself up to say, I think God was trying to get my attention on Sunday. I think there are some changes I might need to make. There's something deliberate I think I want to do for the sake of my own relationship with the Lord. Will you stand with me? Will you pray for me? And then we're in a situation where we're not just trying to remember a message. We're trying to bring truth and help apply it in other people's lives. Maybe it behoves others to say, yeah, you know, I don't know exactly what you're going through, but I can identify somewhat with what it's like to be about 18, leave home, leave a church where everyone knew my name and rock up somewhere. I could do anything right now and no one would say anything. No one would challenge me. The whole world is opening up before me and I might make some really daft choices. You need some Christian brothers and sisters. We look ancient. But we can remember some of what that was like. That's part, <laughs> yeah. yeah, everyone's going, yeah, he really does. <laughs> he looked ancient when he was 30, but now he's... <laughs> Thank you. I see some nodding smiles. Um, and maybe you need some others who will say, Look, I, I've, given my, I've given myself, these last 12 years, I've kind of given myself to raising a family, and I now feel a bit disorientated. Do you know what? There's some other people who probably say, I can remember a little bit of that. Now, we're not just, commi- you're not just kind of like tapping each other on the shoulder. We're saying, come on, go find Jesus. Let's go find him. And the reason why, that, that might feel challenging, awkward. I don't think it needs to be anxiety-ridden. It needs to be a deliberate, do something deliberate. I had this the other day, I think, when Blessam was preaching at, a while ago on the church in Berea and just talking about the Word of God. I just, I realized that Sunday, I just need to change something that I'm doing. It's possible to have a good habit in your personal devotion to God that just gets a little bit boring because you just keep doing the same thing over and over and you kind of think it it stops being I'm really connecting with God and it starts, have I just ticked off a little plan? It becomes just about, have I absorbed a little bit of information? God doesn't just want us to absorb information. He wants us to know him and walk with him and hear him through the word. And so when Blessan spoke that time, it was just a little wake-up call. And I thought, I think I need to stop. I think I need to make some sort of distinct change. That's what I, I, I did. I just feel I'm in the benefit and the fruits of that. It's not rocket science. It wasn't like doing something superhuman. I just realized I needed to change something that I was doing to help me connect with God afresh. 
We need to do that. It doesn't need to be anxiety-stricken, because as we'll see, after assuming that Christ is present, then searching for Christ afresh, thirdly, Mary and Joseph do rediscover Christ. Reading from verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. We realize at this point, Jesus was not hiding. Jesus was not a 12-year-old mischief just thinking, how can I mess with Mary and Joseph's heads? How can I just do the most I possibly can to freak them out? Jesus was not hiding. He was not playing a nasty trick. Jesus was exactly where we should expect him to be. On some level, it's understandable that Jesus felt hurt. Sorry. On some level, it's understandable that Mary felt hurt. On some level, it would be understandable if Joseph felt hurt. You knew I had to be in my father's house. Your father's house is that way in Jerusalem, uh, in Nazareth. Jesus, no, it's, it's, this is my father's house. It's right here. This is the temple. And I'm about my father's business. There would be a sting in that, wouldn't there? But this is the marvel for Mary and Joseph, and this is the marvel for us. If Jesus has been part of our life for 12 years, Jesus does not have to obey us. Jesus does not have to fulfill our expectations. Jesus doesn't have to do as he is told. God doesn't have to answer our prayers in the way that we would most prefer. Jesus does come into our lives, but not as some sentimental therapy experience. He comes into our lives to be our Lord, the one and only Son of God. He comes in not just to be an influence. He comes like no other. He doesn't just come as the leader of a world religion, kind of, well, you know, pick and choose. There's, there's Jesus, there's Muhammad, there's Hare Krishna, there's Buddha, there's someone else. No, he doesn't come as one of many impressive men. He doesn't just come as, as one teacher for us to kind of ponder whether we agree with him or not. The Lord Jesus comes into our lives to be our Lord to be the one before whom we would bow down. And the mystery of it all for Mary and Joseph, it must be so strange because they changed nappies and things, would be that they're in heavenly glory, bowing the knee in glad adoration of the Savior who used to be a 12-year-old in their house. That is really weird. But the encouragement for us, particularly in Mary's example, when, when did she stop discovering amazing things about Jesus? She didn't. 
throughout her whole life, and now for eternity, she is discovering and rediscovering and marveling at and treasuring and beholding and boasting in and rejoicing over and glorifying the Savior of the world who came into her womb. That must be utterly amazing. If you have been a believer, it doesn't just have to be for 12 years, but I'm just going to riff on that for a little bit longer. If you've, been for a, if you've been a believer for 12 years, the danger is you think you know everything. The danger is over-familiarity and boredom. The danger is also that we might start to think of Jesus as kind of genie in the bottle who come out and just perform the odd trick now and again and help us out. Rather than just have cut through again, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Master. And the best life it's possible to lead is one following him. I went past, I was driving back into Sheffield uh, a, a few days ago after just spending some time with some other church leaders in another city. And, and coming into the, into the city, I went past a church building. And it was quite small, actually, and nondescript, this poster. It wasn't even on the front of the building. It was kind of on the side, on the corner. But I guess it was probably there to catch the attention of drivers. And since that was me, I was driving past and I saw the poster. And it said, God believes in you. God believes in you. I just pondered, what, what do you mean? That's weird. And maybe it was supposed to be intriguing. God created me. He knows all about me. The number of hairs on my head, the... the the DNA code that runs through every cell of my body, my entire history and all of my future. What on earth do you mean? Why is a church saying, God believes in you? Doesn't that kind of spin everything around? Maybe there's some intended kind of comfort. God, God cares. God cares about you. God knows all about you. God is not placing his faith in you. That would be weird. We are invited to put our faith in him and say, I believe, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord. Conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. I am staking my whole entire life that obeying him and following him is what life is all about. Our priority as individual believers, as a, as a group together, is to treasure, treasure him. Maybe you wouldn't identify with any of these particular stages. Maybe it would just be that first stage, uh, unaware, just unaware, unaware of Jesus not even thinking about 
maybe there's something else you are kind of chasing after. There's something else that you, uh, you treasure and you've kind of put all your hope in that relationship or that hobby or that career path or, or, or something else. And it is basically a house built on sand that will collapse. God is drawing you to a point where I pray that you know what it is to say and to truly mean, I believe, in Jesus Christ. It's not just that I want to invite Jesus to be somehow within, bringing a little bit of influence. It's that he's inviting me and I'm going to take my whole life and I'm going to transfer it right over here where everything is about Jesus. You might have lots of commitments and we can be tempted sometimes to think, well, I've, 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 I've got my, my family commitments and, and I've got some friendships here. Uh, I, I've got a job. I've got other things that I care about. I've, I've got some special interests. And then, and then over here, I'm, just, I'm kind of considering Jesus. And he becomes just one of a few things. I'll just try and spin that plate. And so that other people think I'm doing well, I'll try and spin that plate over there. In that sense, though those things are not unimportant, there's just one thing for you to attend to, and that's him. It's Jesus. See all the various stages that Mary has been through. She was a woman growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, learning about him, learning who he is and what difference that makes in our lives. And then God used her in knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus as, as closely and intimately as she did, that her knowledge of Jesus would be something that would bless others and spread. I pray that would be an example for us to take hold of in Jesus' name. Uh, we're going to worship in just a moment. I'll, I'll lead us into that time in prayer. Let's bring ourselves before the Lord.